I'm How long ready. did we meet? What? When did we meet? How long ago? Um, it was over a year. Had to be. Yeah. Over a year ago. You, you I do know the... that you gave me a big hug. We didn't shake hands. That's right. It was a chick like the, the first it? moment. Yeah, yeah. You, I remember you actually looking at me oddly. It, who doesn't? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so you know those guys you just meet, and uh, the more you get to know them, the more you like them, right? When I first met Charlie, listen, I've met a lot of great people. He's just one of those great people, you know? And I was trying to tell this the other day, but every time I get to get with Charlie, <laughs> it's like the more impressed I am. Like, so much so, even the last time where we got to spend some time over at uh, Qdobas. Mm-hmm. Oh, my mm-hmm. word. The dude's just rocking my... He is just blowing my mind. Kind of the things that River Church is talking about praying through. I mean, he's already there talking through it as well, and we're just kind of coming at different angles. I think we're going to be blessed this morning just to hear God speak through uh, Charlie. But, Charlie, we're glad you're here, dude. Man, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Thank man. you. Thank you for having me. I'm yeah. excited. So, well, he's, uh, He'll be planning the church at Cane Bay mm-hmm. in September. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to start doing, like, preview services in August. Yeah. Does anybody know where Cane Bay is? Yeah. It's, a, it's how the whole team does. You better know where it's at. <laughs> uh, slightly north of Goose Creek is a place called Cane Bay. Uh, it's pretty new. It's about a week or two old, this community. <laughs> And, uh, it's a little, it's a little young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And young. so they plant in September. We're going to pray over them at the end of the gathering. But uh, I do want to pray over you now. Right. If you are in the Goose Creek area or know anybody in this Goose Creek area, uh, the Cane Bay specifically, please be praying. Um, listen, River Church is not about the name of River Church. It is about the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And if that may be a lot easier commute for some of you. It's a very similar community to the church at Cane Bay. Mm-hmm. And uh, instead of driving a half hour, you could drive 10 minutes to be part of a community that actually lives in your community. So if you know anybody that lives in the Goose Creek or the Cane Bay area, please highly encourage them to lock in with Charlie Swain and the church at Cane Bay. So uh, let me pray and we'll get going. Father, thank you so much for Charlie. Thank you, Jesus, for the man of God that he is. I thank you for the vision that you've given him. I thank you for the obedience that you've spoken into their team, Lord, the sacrifice that's going to follow in the, in the years to come. God, I thank you for my friend. Jesus, I thank you that River Church is allowed to be in fellowship and to partner in advancing and furthering the kingdom of God on earth. Lord, thank you for this brother, and thank you for the way that you're designing this church so unique for the city of Charleston to reach those that nobody in this city is currently reaching, Lord. And so we just pray for anointing on them. And Father, right now, Lord, just speak clearly through Charlie. May we be greatly encouraged by the word that you've given him. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Excellent. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, buddy. Well, it was exciting to be here uh, this morning, and uh, we are so grateful. There, Some of my, my team is right here in the middle, and uh, excited that they're here. And, uh, you know, I never really get to, I don't get to preach that often. Uh, so I told Todd, I was like, man, I haven't preached in, in literally months. So we might need to bring a lunch, uh, to this occasion. And he stole like three of my minutes by doing all that, but I'll, for, I'll forgive him for that. And we'll try to get through. But, uh, when, when I asked him, what do you, you know, is there anything that specifically that you want me to preach about? He said, this is it. And he gave me, he kind of like did this like eye in the sky type thing. And he said, love God. Thanks. You know, very specific. And well, I mean, that's a good thing because there's just a lot of scripture that deals with loving God. I mean, this is, this is T-ball for preachers. It is put the ball on the tee, hit a home run. Here we go. This is done. And as I began working through this and searching the scriptures and thinking through, what am I going to tell these people that I don't know, but loving, how do you love God? How is it that we bring before a, a, a loving God something that's worthwhile? 
How do we love God? How do we do that? And so searching the scriptures, I was going to be in 1 John where God loves us first and then we love others in return and love him back. And I was, I was there until, until one day and I was, uh, I was checking out some news stories and a, and a story flashed across the screen about uh, Westboro Baptist Church. And you might know uh, it's kind of a hot topic nowadays where you have this, um, this church and they're not really a church. John Stewart said that, that church's chicken is, is more of a church than this church. Um, uh, but they're, they're the church that, that they picket everywhere. That's their whole deal. They picket uh, homosexuality. They picket uh, soldiers' funerals. It's, it's really ugly. It's really hateful. And it's really nasty. And uh, the guy's name, who's the pastor, is uh, Fred Phelps. And when, he, when he's interviewed, he's often asked, why do you do this? Why do you say the things that you do? Uh, isn't God a loving God? Doesn't God love us? What is the deal? And he says this very clearly. And this is the normal thing. And it says this on their website. It says, for every verse in, on love in the Bible, there is a verse on God's hatred of sin and sinners. And, and we'd mostly agree with all of that until the last two words. And so I, that, that piqued my interest as I'm studying through love for God. And then he says, every verse on love, there's also a verse on wrath. There's also a verse on anger and hatred towards sin and sinners, and I began to research this, and, and I'm here to tell you uh, that it's true. That he's actually right. Um, actually, there is more evidence uh, for for God's wrath and hatred of sin and sinners in the Bible than there is on love. Now, the the majority of the New Testament is going to kind of look at God's love and favor and kindness and grace towards us. However, you take the whole scope of Scripture, and God, we know that God doesn't change. You take the whole Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, specifically a lot in Revelation, there's a lot of wrath. There's a lot of burning hatred. There's a lot of, I hate these people from the mouth of God. Is Fred Phelps right? How can this loving God also have this other side of him that is completely hatred? How does, how does that work? I mean, God's love, we know we have these wonderful stories, the prodigal son of the, the father losing his child to uh, evil ways, and then he comes, you know, as the child comes back. I have this picture of God as the loving father who, as the son appears on the horizon, he starts running towards the son in, lo- in just absolute love, embraces him and says, welcome back. I have that picture of God in my head. You know, and then we have, you know, obviously verses, John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And then we, we know that God saves us. First Timothy 2 says, God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man and man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom ransom for all men. In 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, um, God is patient with you. He loves you. And he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I mean, and then there's the, the whole story of the cross. The fact that Jesus sacrifices his pure and holy life for us. Death on a cross. Death, literally, death by love and it is obvious through the scripture that he 
loves us. However, there's also a large amount of evidence, and I'll just give you a few. Psalm 5, 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Psalm 11, 5 through 6 says this. The Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals uh, coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be a portion of their cup. Malachi 1, 2 through 3 says says this. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. He's... you know, he's acknowledging that there was, there was two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and one of them God loved, and one of them he hated. In the, in the book of Malachi, he's actually extending that out to the people of Israel, or the people of Jacob, and then the, the Edomites, the people of, uh, of Esau. Like, in Malachi, he's basically saying, I love all of these people, and I hate all of these people. Like, that's very strong. Language in, in the New Testament, Romans one eighteen says, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, um, against all ungodliness and un- unrighteousness. And you might be hearing those verses and say, well, he's talking about evil people. He's talking about unrighteous people who, pe- who, are, who are completely unholy, who are wretched, ugly, nasty, awful sinners. That's what he's talking about. Obviously, God's not going to like that. And then you're just like, that's not me. And then he says in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. Not one. No one understands. And no one speaks truth. Or seeks truth. If we take the whole counsel of scripture. How does God. Hate. And love. At the same time. Now we've all heard. We've all heard. You know the the wonderful biblical truth. That God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And we've all heard that. Who's heard that before? Heard that before? Um, the problem is, is that's not biblical. <laughs> uh, that doesn't actually come from Scripture at all. Uh, in fact, there's a very famous man who said that in 1929 in his autobiography. Uh, Gandhi said that. He said that we should love the sinner, but hate the sin. And we have Christianized that to mean that that's how God works. But... In the Bible, he doesn't separate sin from sinner. They are linked. So, when Todd tells me, you need to preach on how to love God. And I say, awesome. Obviously, we're going to learn how to love God from how he loves us. But then for me, there's this major dilemma. This major problem of God who hates people and has immense wrath for people because at the altar and i'll give you here's here's the end of the sermon at the very beginning we how we love god is we imitate him we simply copy him there's nothing creative in the way that we love god we just imitate him copy him that's how we love him he has told us exactly how we should love him so we just imitate him but there's this small problem of hatred, this small problem of uh, wickedness. And, and so what we're going to do is try to solve this dilemma of what do we do with a loving God that hates people? And how do we imitate a God who hates? So uh, it'll be up on the screen, but I'm going to talk from uh, Romans, uh, preach from Romans 5, 6 through 11. 
Romans 5, 6 through 11. Hopefully it'll be up on the, uh, on the screen up there. If you can follow along with me. And this is the Apostle Paul writing. And I love how he fixes this dilemma. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one who who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. Catch it. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, get it, from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we, have, uh, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a lot of big words. It's a lot of heavy stuff, and we're going to wade through it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I'm um, uh, just kind of just really honored to be here to preach um, what little I know about the gospel. Father, I know that what I have just read is the most, most perfect thing that will be said today because it is altogether truth, 100%. And I pray that your word would stay on the hearts of these people that my words would would blow away, but your truth would remain on the hearts and minds of this church. Father, we love you and we're thankful uh, that you love us. Father, we thank you that you hate sin and you are holy and you will have nothing to do with it. Help us through this, Father. We love you. Amen. When I uh, was in college in Alabama, I uh, went around and uh, we had this wonderful program where we trained young preachers through my college and we would go to these very small uh, Baptist churches all over rural Alabama and they were everywhere. I mean, when you take a trip through the country and you see these little tiny places and you're like, wow, there's a church that meets in there. It's true. And, and, and there'd be anywhere from I'd, I'd show up at the door, there might be anywhere from 10 to 75 people at any given week. And um, there was always this treasure uh, of, you know, most of the time it was these small, uh, and, and forgive me, white churches. And they were all over the place, and that was the majority. But there was a small treasure if you got chosen to go and preach at an African-American church. It was amazing, right? Because here's the deal. Like here... We have to force you all to clap. You know, it's like, come on. Here we go. Like, those people, uh-uh. It's all the time. Like, you don't have to tell anybody. It's amazing. And sermons are a conversation between the audience and the preacher. It is a regular, woo, hey, man, it's awesome. Woo, let's go. You know, it's regular, constant. And I get up there and, and start to preach, and I didn't really know how, what to expect. But this was my favorite moment uh, from that one day was, I wasn't very good, and I'm probably not very good now, but what, you'll become better preaching in front of an African-American community of believers because they just encourage you the entire time you're up there. And there was this guy, he sat in the back, he sat back in his chair, and he had his arms crossed the whole time, he kind of had his, his face back like that, and I, would start, and I would start to preach. And this guy was 
after every sentence, he would say something or shout something. And my favorite part is when I would talk about sin or sinners or how we are um, depraved and evil and wrong. Like he would, well, most of the time he'd say, hallelujah, preacher, hallelujah. But when I talked about sin, this is what he would say, fix it. <laughs> fix it, preacher, fix it. It was unbelievable. So, and he just, and like, and I'd be like, and I'd just be going at it. And, like, and we're sinful. Fix it, preacher. <laughs> and I mean, it was all I could do not to laugh. And finally, and, and after a while of that, and I'd say, but Jesus came. Hallelujah. It was amazing. And I, I mean, I, I mean, I got riled up. It was good. So today, if you want to, at any point when I'm talking about hatred and sin, just say, yell that out. It's great. All right. But we're, we're dealing with a dilemma in which something needs to be fixed. There has to be some type of solution. So let me start with this. And this is kind of my first, my first point. I, here's the deal. And I want to make sure that we lay it the ground right, the base right, that God does infinitely love us. He really does. And this is how I want to put it. God loves enough to turn the subjective into the objective. God loves us enough to turn the subjective into the objective. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. If you look in verse 5, if you've got a Bible up, I didn't put it on the screen, I apologize. But if you look at verse 5, it says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now that's very kind of subject that's the subjective love it's kind of this the love of god has been poured into you that's wonderful what does that mean you know i love you okay that's very substantive i mean it's it's very subjective it's kind of like this feeling or this experience and we've we've all experienced at least hopefully experienced some kind of true love into our life whether it be a parent boyfriend husband child whatever that there is this experience of love but there's nothing to ground it it's just out there floating in the universe somewhere and god loves us he tells us this i mean he creates us specifically in our image, in, in Genesis, he, he creates us and he says, you're very, very good. And, and then he also gives us this picture that God is the Father and we are the... Come, there we go. Thank you. All right. God is the Father and we are the children, that God the Father has infinite, unbelievable love for his children. And this uh, metaphor goes all throughout Scripture. And of course, they take another step where Christ, Christ is the groom and we, the church, are the bride. Amazing love between the groom and the bride. Unfailing, unconditional love. And love often is kind of immaterial it's a feeling or if it's an experience. What Paul says here in these verses, um, these verses, well, they were behind me, uh, these verses on uh, 6 through 11, he puts an objective truth to what this love is. And it's love given to us. Christ's death on the cross was the action or the object of love. It's the thing that grounds God's love. It is the pinnacle of all history. Everything is leading up 
to the cross and after the cross, everything is looking back into the cross because it was the ultimate picture of what love is. It is the object of love. Death by love. And it embodies everything that love is. I mean, think through that amazing passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Think about Jesus. Think about it in the context of the cross. Was Jesus patient on that cross? Love is kind. Yeah. Love is not self-seeking. Think through that passage with Jesus hanging on the cross. You better believe that every ounce of that scripture passage is the perfect picture of Christ on the cross. And then he gives us this piece in verse 6. And he says, for while we were still weak. And the kind of Greek there, and I'm not going to give you the word because I don't know it. But the, but the, word, the word there is morally fallible or um, completely away from being good. That we are weak and unable. But his love, according to this passage, has set a place for us, even though we are completely weak. And a plan was set into place for us. You see, before you were even born, this is, I'm trying to grab the immensity of God's love. Before that you were born, before I was born, God in his righteousness, had a plan for your salvation. Before you were conceived, there is a plan out there to save you. God's righteousness provides that. Now, here's the deal. It was, it, it was a court case. It was a trial. And God justified you and I on the cross and made us, uh, gave us the ability to be saved. But here's the deal. God's righteousness creates the plan. Here's what I want you to get. God's righteousness creates the plan of salvation, but his love motivates it. His love motivates it. Who has kids? Who has kids? Before you, um, and, and I did this, I have two kids, one on the way. I, um, before they were born, we began to put the plan together. Began to get the bedroom together began to make infinite trips to Babies R Us. There is nothing in Babies R Us that I want for myself. Amen. Fix it. Right? <laughs> right? There is nothing. However, I know in my mind God has given us, me and my wife, enough wisdom to know that we have to prepare a plan for this child. I can't just come home with it and say, there's a piece of carpet. Enjoy. You know? Good thing it's not wood floors, you know, like you have to have a plan. However, the love I have for my child makes this experience completely joyful to go and say, hey, man, I can't wait to get this stuff. I can't wait to put this crib together that has a thousand pieces, right? Love motivates this, makes it a joy. You see, Christ, God has a plan. His righteousness creates a plan for salvation and his love motivates this. And you can see Jesus with his eyes on Jerusalem, having a plan, three years of ministry, knowing where he's going and his love is motivating him to get there. But on the other side of that, let's see these words in the scripture passage. This is what God calls us. 
In verse 6, he calls us the ungodly. In verse, um, in verse 8, he calls us sinners. And even worse, um, in verse 10, he calls us enemies. Ungodly sinners and enemies. That is what we are according to the wrath of God. And this very much seems strange to us. We're like, this is not the picture of God that I got at VBS. There was no picture on the felt board of this. Sometimes they throw some fire up there. Right? This is not the picture of God that I thought. However, through Scripture, we know that God's attributes are undeniable. That they are absolute. That He does not change. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. It's not like He just kind of, "Ah, I'm going to be nicer when Jesus comes. I'm not going to hate as much. I'm not going to, I'm going to kind of squelch the wrath. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is just as wrathful right now as he was back then, as he will be in the future. But he is just as loving. And I want us to get that through our head because it causes some concern for us. He also is infinitely just. And so he cannot, his attributes... He cannot just say, you're forgiven. What if Jesus never existed? But God still was, is God still able to save us? We still have this sin. We still have this evil in our life. Without Jesus, can't God just say, boom, forgiven, done? If you're sorry enough, can you do that? Is that okay? See, according to his character, the very fact that he is absolutely just and righteous, he cannot do that it would be against his very will and psalm 111 verse 7 says the works of his hands are faithful and just in daniel 437 he says praise and exalt the king of heaven because his ways are right and just it simply would not be just if god just said forgiven you're done i just decide to forgive you without any price or any debt paid there would be no justice there and so, and here's, here's what I want you to gather, and this, is, this has been deep for me this week, so get, get deep with me for just a minute. That oftentimes we think that the only thing that separates from us from God is our sin. And that's absolutely true. That there is sin within our life that separates us from God. But let me, get you, let me give you this little piece. We are an enemy of God, and so therefore he is protecting himself from us. And his justice puts a wall in front of him that does not allow us to cross to him. Picture that. It's not just our sin that separates us. God has put a wall in front of himself and said, you are too sinful to be around me. And that might sound prideful to you, and it's not. It might sound angry, but it's not. You see, God is infinitely holy. He is completely other than us. He is absolutely pure and cannot have unholiness or dirtiness or sin next to him. And so he therefore has to protect himself from any impurity. And so yes, there is sin that separates us from God, but there also is his justice that puts a giant wall. Now you might say, well, well, you know, can we scale that? How's it work? I mean, can I do enough good things to scale that? No. Absolutely not. It is a problem that you and I cannot solve. So I'm just, so the question is, 
Well, if God's justice is barring us from relationship with Him, what is the solution? Because here, here's, my, here's my temperament. I'm one of those people, and I hate to tell you this, I'm one of those people that can see the right and wrong in everything, right? It's very black and white for me that, like, I could tell you what's wrong with you pretty quickly. Like, I can walk into a situation and be like, wow, that's not really working that well. Or I can, seriously, I can walk into a church and be like, wow, they're not, they're not getting it on that, you know? Is there anybody out there like that that you want to admit it? Liars. Thank you. Okay. Very good. He's like, I'm not going to break this rule. I'm going to raise my hand. Um, but I'm like that. And, and the spiritual, I hate taking spiritual gift inventories because they always tell me that I have this. It, and, and their word for it is prophecy, that I have the gift of prophecy. Now, don't, don't get that confused. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. And I work for a nonprofit organization. But uh, you know, it, prophecy is this gift of a discernment, if you will, that I can see black and white. And oftentimes, here's my problem, and this creates conflict all the time. I see problems, and I'm just like, that's a problem. But I have no solution to fix it. <laughs> Anybody have a spouse that does that? What's wrong with you? Obviously, that's wrong. Like, how do I fix that? I don't know. You fix it. That's me. Thankfully, here's the deal, our God isn't like that. And graciously, God, not us, provides a solution to his own problem. He provides a solution that both takes care of the just side of God and it takes care of our sin at the uh, also. And so I'm going to give you this kind of giant illustration. I don't have much time left, but... Had anybody seen that? It's called the bridge illustration. And I wish I had it on the screen, but I don't. It's called the bridge illustration. It's very common evangelical track, evangelistic track, where you have, um, let's say, uh, let's say, you have man over here on on this cliffside, and he's stand he's standing here and he's waving at you. This is man, and then there's God over here, infinite and absolutely, completely holy, altogether completely holy. And then there is this major chasm right here. And usually what's in here is, is sin. And I've also added this massive wall in it too. You have man over here, dirty, sinful, awful, enemy of God. God over here, un, uh, completely holy, absolutely just, pure, sin in the middle. And here is how God makes it right in verse 9. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So you know that what happens in this illustration is we, we draw a cross between the two cliff sides. And there's, you know, Jesus on the cross creates a bridge between us over here and God over here. And usually here's the deal. And this is what I want you to get. Usually, here's the deal. It's as soon as the bridge is made, this is man. Man just kind of like gleefully walks over, gives the father a hug. It's awesome. Everybody is wonderful because of the bridge that is made. That's not exactly the biblical picture, and it's a major misconception. The biblical picture is that even though God has taken away sin, we are still over here burdened, and unwilling, and the weight of sin is keeping us here 
all together. And you, you might be out there, and this might be some of you, that you understand what God has done for you. That you get it. That you understand that Jesus came to die for you. And that allows you to have this bridge from where we are to where God is. If you could just get away from your sin, that you'd be able to run to God and where He is. That you'd be able to cast everything off. That you'd be able to get rid of these problems and be able to run directly to God. Now here's the gospel picture that I want River Church to get. Is we are still standing here sometimes completely away and even walking this way away from where God is. Here's the beautiful picture of the gospel. It's not us who crosses the bridge. It's God who runs this way. We are the only faith on the planet where God leaves where he is to chase us down and to love us. And, and it's, not without, it's, it's not without us acknowledging God. The Bible speaks very clearly that there, there needs to be some kind of human response and I would call this just simply the call of somebody saying, God, please help me, that there is an understanding of what Jesus did for me. And saying, God, I need you. I need you to cross that bridge, and I need you to come here. I need you to love me enough to cross the bridge and come and take me away from my sin, right here where I stand. That is the call, and God comes running. In, um, in our house, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. Her name is Reagan. She's beautiful. And uh, we have trained her, um, thankfully, uh, that uh, she stays in her bed unless she needs us. And uh, to, that's just for her safety because she's upstairs and we're downstairs. And we don't want her to randomly get up in the middle of the night and just come downstairs because it's dangerous. So what normally happens is, you know, she sleeps in the dark. She's a good little two-and-a-half-year-old and we close the door. But here's, here it is. Sometimes often, every once in a while, a couple times a week, we hear the faint cry of Reagan saying, Daddy, 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 come get me. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And as soon as I hear it, literally, it is a bounding up the stairs to her where I find her. Sometimes she's weeping, she's crying because she's scared, and she's just sitting in her bed, unable to go anywhere. Sometimes it's, it's actually kind of funny to me that she just wanted me to be there. And she, she just looks at me and she smiles. Sometimes she needs something, but she's there and she just calls for me and I come as the willing father. It's a beautiful picture of this. It's not that when she needs me, she gets out of her bed, comes downstairs and finds me and finds what I'm doing. She just calls for me and I come. If we truly get this, if we truly understand this, we understand how God works all together and it's wonderful. The dilemma is solved at this point. Did you see it? Did you see how God fixed it? How we didn't fix it, but God fixed it? So the question then, uh, let me come back. I've got altogether 13 seconds. Um, but <laughs> for real. Uh, but God, uh, God created and he fixed everything. And so it's like, how do we love God? How could you not? <laughs> how could after that? After the very picture of God coming down, crossing to us and saving us out of our sin. How could you not love God after that picture? How can you not? And see, here's the deal. And what's fun about this language is, is um, you can see in verse um, 
In verse 9 again, since therefore we have now been justified. Justified is a legal term. It's, it's something that happens once and for all. When you are, when you are tried in a, in a court in front of a jury, you are tried one time. And when, it, when the court says not guilty, it's done. It's over. You don't do it again. And God has taken our sin and put it on trial on the cross. And he has declared us not guilty, justified. It is done once and for all. That's beautiful. And we can know that. And the bridge is there and it's there forever. Now here's the deal though. It's kind of fun. He moves from this one-time term of justification to, um, to verse 10. Here's the deal. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Usually when we use the word reconcile, we have this idea of friendship or communication or relationship. Justified is a legal term. Reconcile is a friendship term. And so while the justification is always going to be there forever and ever, reconciliation is a regular, ongoing Christian pursuit of God. And we might fall, just, and it's just like, just like your marriage. Weddings are simply legal, they're beautiful legal symbols. That's all they are. It's a relationship afterwards that needs to be reconciled regularly. Right? I'm never going to divorce my life. We justified that on that altar that one day. And it's done. It's a once deal. I'm never going to get married to my wife again. Right? But there is regular reconciliation. And it works the same way. God has justified you once and for all. But we have a regular, daily reconciliation of, of, of relationship with Him. So how do we turn that um, into objective? And, and I'm sure Todd has dealt with you about this a great deal. But we love God infinitely. We praise Him, love Him, talk to Him, communicate with Him. And He also calls us to love others. And that's how we love Him. That's very easy. And it's very objective. The things that you do, love gave every bit of it. Your community groups, you are objectively loving God And it's a beautiful thing by imitating him. But one last thing. Here's the deal. What do we do with the wrath of God? If he calls us to imitate him, what do we do with that? How do we imitate wrath? How do we do that? If we're to imitate everything that God does, how do we imitate wrath? We're going to go to Colossians 3. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Colossians 3 says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your own old self and its practices and have put on your new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator do you see it do you see it in the first words put to death have wrath on sin just as god hates sin we are also to hate sin when we cross from death to life. Well, the Bible says that we put off our old self and take on our new self. We are, and I'm not lying, supposed to hate the old self. 
Leave it alone. Never go back to it. It is a dead, rotting carcass. And we should literally hate it. And we don't like to say hate in church, but I'm telling you, the old Charlie in my mind, in my heart, is dead and I hate him. And you might say, well, you know, God did some things in my life and, you know, you know, God, you know, I obviously got here somehow and some of those things that I did back then got me to where I am today. And I, and I, you know, I'm not afraid of saying, you know, that God redeems things and that's a good thing. God does redeem things that we have done, but it does not mean that we go back to those old things. It means that we live in the love of God and hate our sin and kill it. Put it to death. So here it is. Two challenges. Number one, there are those of you in here I know that have heard now the gospel. And you are sitting over here in your sin. And all you have to do is call out just like my daughter in the darkness. Say, God, I want you. He has torn down the wall. He has created a bridge. And he will come running after you. If that's you, we want to talk to you. And we're going to be in the back. Uh, your pastor will be during some of the songs. Then um, for others, for, for those of you who have uh, made that connection with God recently or in your past, there is still a regular putting off of sin and death to sin. It is still putting it off. Are you hating your sin? And what are you doing to hate your sin. Put it away. Imitate your God and love him. Let's pray together. Father, I, um, I'm thankful uh, for a chance to um, hopefully speak your truth. And we know that your love extends to everyone in this room. And so I ask that you would hear the calls, that you would hear them. And that you would come running and save. That you would beautifully save. And Father, I ask that you would come now. Mortify our sin. Kill it. Absolutely annihilate it from our lives. Father, take temptation from us. So that we might love you. As you would have us love you. Thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible. And this church. Amen.